Well, welcome again. I appreciate you being here. It's good to have Sarah up on the platform singing with us this morning. And uh, Brianna back on the table. She's learning the ropes back there. It's, it's wonderful the way God is, is bringing people and people are responding uh, to ministry in the context of this church. Before I get into Acts chapter 9, uh, which is where we'll be today, I just want to, um, the Bible says uh, to children, honor your mother and your father. And it doesn't give a time limit on that. Uh, and so I just want to honor my mom and dad. They celebrate their 60th wedding anniversary this week. I got to go to, my brother and I got to go, and, and our wives got to go to dinner with them uh, last night and spend last evening, and they were in church in the first service. Um, and um, I'm really, really proud of my parents. Um, because they have walked with Jesus uh, ever since I can remember. Uh, and when my dad got back from Vietnam, God got a hold of his life in a profound way. And he and my mother served the kingdom through their local church uh, ever since I can remember. I remember some of my first memories as a little boy, um, my very first memories of our home was my mom and dad leading a high school Bible study. And they didn't have any kids even near high school. But they knew that God had called them into kingdom work. And every moment, every season of their lives, even up to present, uh, they together have served the kingdom of God through the local church. Um, I, I, when I started this church in 2004, 2005, my parents were in their 60s, and my dad was the lead of the setup team that would load stuff in and out of the truck and trailer every Sunday morning in his 60s. And my mom would take care of all the administrative stuff. They have understood that though you may re uh, retire from a vocation, you never retire from a call. And to this day, my dad's 79, my mom is 78. They still serve their local church in mentoring young couples and families and leading Bible studies. And they have impressed upon me and upon my, my siblings the value and the need to serve the kingdom together. Here's, here, here's what I realize, and, and here's my charge to any of you who are single and my challenge to any of you who are married, most people, when they look for a spouse, they look for things that I call that fulfill their self-actualization. In other words, they look for someone whom they love and that loves them, which is appropriate in marriage. They look for someone that they like and that likes them, which is appropriate in marriage. And they look for someone that makes their life better and hopefully that they can make their life better. That's self-actualization. How do we become all that we could be within the context of our marriage. And that's good, but it's certainly not enough. And what most people fail to realize is that marriage is not primarily about self-actualization. Marriage is about kingdom manifestation. And so my challenge to people who are not yet married, when you're looking for someone to marry, don't just find someone that you love and that loves you and that you like and like them and you can make each other better. Look for someone with whom you serve the kingdom together better than alone. 
because that's the purpose of marriage. Marriage is this earthly institution that God established to represent the relationship between Christ and his church. And, and the point of it, the, the, the deepest point of marriage is kingdom manifestation. Look for someone with whom you better serve the kingdom together than apart. You understand? And that's what my parents got. And, and their entire, like, I, I, I don't know a, a moment in my parents' lives where they weren't serving the local church somehow together because they served better together than separately. And I honor them for that. I value them. I celebrate them. And I'm so thankful that this church has couples like that in it. I mean, even this place, I look at the Masmanians and the McElroys and the Whitakers and the Addingtons and so many who, who serve together in the local church, regardless of their vocation. Because they realize not just marriage being about self-actualization, but marriage being about kingdom manifestation. And so if you're young, I want you to have a new lens through which to look for a spouse. One who will help you realize kingdom manifestation together. And if you're already married, I want to challenge you to make that the course of your marriage. You understand? Oh, I so value my parents. I can't, I mean, I, I told them, I told them, I said, I, I can't wait for you to get to heaven. I mean, I can because I don't want you to go there yet. But I can't wait for you to get to heaven because you're going to get to see all this fruit from 60 years of marriage together in ministry. I'm so excited for them. They're going to have quite a welcoming party. I want that for you. I want that for me and Shelly. But it has to do with this kingdom manifestation, not just self-actualization. Just a challenge. Acts 9. Considering what God was, was in the process of doing, the establishment of his church, the foundation of this church, considering all that he was orchestrating, what he was putting together, and what was building and coming, the fact that the account of the conversion of Saul is listed three times in this one book is very significant. God gives a lot of attention to this one man's conversion and transformation. Other than the life of Jesus, this is probably the earthly life that had the most impact on this world. You and I sit here today, and churches all around the world sit today in worship because of this one man's life, conversion, transformation, and ministry. So let's jump into chapter 9. It's a long chapter. There's no way I'm going to get through it all. I thought I might be able to, uh, but I'm going to divide this up over a couple day, a couple weeks. But let's look at, at, at the beginning of this. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he, if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? This is right after the death of Stephen, of which Saul was approving of the the martyrdom of the first Christ follower, Stephen, Saul was, became very angry 
and convinced of his own self-righteousness. And after the martyrdom of Stephen, Saul began this rampage that was fueled by his religious fervor. But his religious fervor was devoid of Jesus and the grace of God. Let me just stop right here because we need to understand this. That religious fervor without Jesus and the grace of God brutalizes people. This is true for everything from the religious jihadists to the politicalization of American religion, both on the left and the right side of our aisle. Religious fervor without Jesus and the grace of God brutalizes people, whether it's in the Middle East or America. Do we understand that? And we run a real dangerous ground when we attach our own religious fervor to our political system. That's devoid of Jesus and the grace of God because it will brutalize people. And we easily identify it over there, but we don't easily identify it here, and it's of the same spirit. And so Paul is filled with his self-righteous indignation about his religion, but it was devoid of Jesus and the grace of God, and it was destroying people, and that's what it does. And, and the Bible talks about the disciples of Jesus and calls them people of the what? People of the way. This is what early Christians were called, the people of the way. This is significant because we have to understand that Christianity is, is, is a way. It's a way of living and a way of believing. It's both. It's not one or the other. Simply believing makes you a Pharisee, a, 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 a theologian without grace. Simply behaving makes you just a religious robot without the presence of God. And so it's a way, a way of believing and a way of behaving. It's a way to view the world through the lens of the kingdom. And so right at the start, we have to ask ourselves, if we consider ourselves to be people of God, disciples of Jesus, we have to consider, are we people of the way? We have to ask ourselves, how is my way different than everybody else's way? My way of believing, my way of viewing the world, my way of behaving in the world has to be different than those who are not disciples. We have to ask ourselves just real honest questions. How is the way I handle my finances different than those who don't know Jesus? How is the way I handle my money manifesting the kingdom priority in the world? How is the way I forgive a manifestation of the heart of God towards people? How is the way of, of my habits magnifying the way of God in my life? How is the way of dating, if I'm single, magnifying the purity of my faith and of my Jesus? How is the way I use social media magnifying kingdom and not just promoting self? How is the way? Do you understand? People of the way. And what I love about my Jesus is the way my Jesus responds to people like Saul, like me. While Saul was not seeking Jesus, Jesus sought Saul. Even while Saul was actively rejecting all things of the way, the one of the way Jesus was seeking him. When Saul had decided against Jesus, Jesus had already decided for Saul. And he does the same for you and me. Some of you may have decided already against God and against Jesus. Well, guess what? He's already decided for you. 
And the Bible says he pursues you. And he is pursuing you. The first thing that, that, that Jesus says to Saul on the road to, to Damascus is what? No, read the Bible. What's the first thing he says? Saul, Saul. He calls him by name first. Why? Because God is a personal God who knows your name, who sees you individually, who wants you. He's not a God that barks down commands. He's a God that says, I want you first. And he says his name twice. It, it, when, when God says the name twice, it, especially in this case, it's not out of anger. It's not like, Saul, Saul! Like, you know how that goes, right? If you, if, if you had kids, you understand. If you've got a pet dog, you understand. <laughs> it's not out of anger. It's not a, when God does it like this, it's out of deep emotion. It's like, Saul, Saul. Saul. He's calling some of you that way this morning. It's not out of anger. It's not out of barking commands. He has some deep emotion for you. It's like, Saul, Saul. What's his first question? Why do you persecute me? Why do you persecute me? That's his question. There's two things we can emphasize in this question of God. One is, why do you persecute me? Now, let's think for a minute. Saul was on this road to Damascus, which, by the way, he was so full of religious fervor and, and, and anger. To go from where he was to Damascus was about 120, 130 miles. It was a six days journey. He was committed to squashing this thing. And Jesus encounters him, why do you persecute me? Who was he going to go harass? People of the way. Men and women. But what does Jesus say? Notice, Jesus doesn't say, why are you persecuting my kids? He doesn't say that. What's he say? Why are you persecuting me? Like this is personal to Jesus. Because it's an attack not on his kids. It's an attack on him. Jesus is the one who said, when you do this to the least of these, you've done it to me. And so this is a personal attack against Jesus. Here's what I know. Jesus takes attacks of his kids personally. Here's the warning. When you and I fight with others who are his kids, we may be picking a fight with someone we cannot contend with. Do you understand? So we better be very careful on how we treat each other. And that's why I try. I don't get it right all the time, but I try to be the first to apologize, even if I don't think I'm wrong. <laughs> even if I know that I'm right. I want to be the first to apologize. I want to be the first to make sure Jesus knows I'm sorry. Sometimes my apology isn't even to you, it's to Jesus, through you. Do you understand? Doesn't matter if I think I'm right. Doesn't matter if you think you're right. 
When we fight and bicker with each other, who are we fight and bickering with? Why do you persecute me? The, the other thing we can focus on in this question is the word why. It, it's almost as if Jesus is saying, why would you do something so futile? You want to fight against me? That's just stupid. Why would you do something that you know is going to be a losing battle for you? Why? It just doesn't make any sense. That's what Jesus is saying. There's two other places where the conversion of Saul is listed in the book of Acts. Acts 22 and Acts 26. And, and so these two questions that Paul, Saul asks, this is before his name is changed to, to Paul. The first is in verse 5, and he asks, who are you, Lord? It's a good question to ask. The, the second place where this, this interaction between Jesus and Saul is listed is Acts 22. And, and Paul gives us a little bit more clarity on what happened on this road to Damascus that we don't have uh, in Acts chapter 9. And Paul, telling his own story, says, tells a little bit more in Acts 22. And, and the second question Paul asks is, is this, what shall I do, Lord? What shall I do? What do you want me to do? So there are actually two questions that Paul asks that we don't get in Acts 9. We've got to read further in Acts 22 as Paul's retelling this story. He asks these two questions. Who are you? What do you want me to do? Those are two of the most important questions that one can ask and one must ask. Who are you, Lord, and what do you want me to do? The, the fact is that we probably have a lot of questions for God, right? We have a lot of questions. It, when, when, when organizations do surveys about the most often asked questions, what people would most often ask God, the, the questions center around two things, suffering and the future. Why is there so much suffering in the world? Why did you allow this? Why don't you intervene? And the future, what's going to happen? When will you? When will I? Christian about suffering. And the thing that amazes me is the questions that most people ask have already been addressed in the Bible. The questions that are not asked are these two questions that Paul asks. Exactly who are you and what do you want from me? The, the fact that this first question, who are you, God? Jesus has already answered that question for us. Jesus has said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You know exactly who the Father is because you've seen me. And he says it in, in um, yeah, look at this. He says it in John 14. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that'll be enough. Jesus answered, don't you know me? Philip, even after I've been among you for such a long time, anyone who's seen me has seen the Father. You, you've, you've seen the Father because you've seen me. So Jesus answers the question of who God is. It's, he's the full reflection of the Father. And, you know, I've spent a lot of time doing a lot of series on who God is and who Jesus is, and they're on our website. I, if, if you've got questions about that, I encourage you to go there and, and listen to those. I've tried to explain from Scripture, biblically, who God is and who Jesus is. But that's the first question we have to ask. The second question is, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? If any of you, if any of us dare ask that question, we need to ask it 
with full submission and determined obedience in mind. See, the significance of that question, what do you want me to do, is that it flies in the face of what we normally ask God. We normally get that question backwards. In essence, our question to God is, what are you going to do for me? Now, we don't say it with that much boldness. And we don't say it in those words. But that's the question most people ask God, what are you going to do for me? It looks like this. God, when will you dot, dot, dot? God, how will you dot, dot, dot? God, how long dot, dot, dot? God, please dot, dot, dot. All those questions is a nice way of basically saying, God, what are you going to do for me? Do you understand that? Paul's question was the right question. God, what do you want me to do for you? See, one of those prayers is a prayer of religious consumerism. The other prayer is a prayer of a disciple of an unstoppable kingdom. And so we have to ask ourselves, which is the question we most often ask God? Paul said, what do you want me to do? And then in Acts 26, 14, I, I, I put it as four, I think, but it's 14. God says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. Does anybody know what a goad is? Now, like, th this is a pretty profound statement what, what, what Jesus is saying. Why do you kick against the goads? A goad is a really long pole with a really sharp point on the end. That's what a goad is. And it was used of farmers plowing fields with oxen. And you Bible students should remember that in Judges 3, Shamgar killed 600 enemies of God with an ox goad. It could be used as a weapon. And what would happen when the farmers plowing the field with oxen, when the oxen would get stubborn and just stay put in their way, the farmer would take that ox goat and gah, jab him in the hindquarters. And it was really painful. And the ox out of pain would start moving. Or when the ox started getting off track, the farmer would gah, poke him with that ox goat. And that ox would jerk and get back in line. Do you see what God's saying? Why do you kick against the goat? How painful would it would be not just to receive the goat, but to actually kick against it? And there are some people who know they're just stuck in their ways. And God says, Gah! you want to fight against me? Why? Why would you kick against the goats? You want to get off track? You want to keep kicking against the goats? Why? Not out of anger, out of imp like why? When I was in high school, uh, my mom had a conversation with me about my life and my faith. And she, I vividly remember, she said, Carl, you're kicking against the goads. I didn't realize what she was saying at the moment. I realize it now. This is what God says to us when we push back against him. Why would you kick against the goats? I wonder who God's saying that to this morning.
You want to give him an answer? Why would you kick against the goats? It makes no sense. Look at this. So Jesus says to Paul, Get up, go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. How much of the future does Jesus tell Paul? He doesn't tell him any of the future, right? Like he doesn't say, look, here's, here's what I'm doing, just so you'll know. So I know it's tough right now. But don't worry. I work all things together for the good of those who love me. Call to clear my, I'm calling to my purpose. I'm going to work this out. This is how this is going to go. You don't have anything to worry about. You know, my plans for you are to prosper you. I'm, you, know, you know Jeremiah 29, 11. You know, I've come that you might have life and life to the full. You heard me say that. It's recorded in John 10, 10. Like, I've got this planned out for you. You're going to be okay. I'm going to take you to this house. You're going to get your sight back, and I'm going to use He doesn't tell him any of that. What's he tell him? He tells him his next immediate step. That's it. And that's the way God works. Why? Because he wants us to be obedient in the moment. Whatever that moment is, he says, I want you to be obedient to me right now. This is how God directs our life. Don't worry yourself. Don't concern yourself about this week, about next week, about next month, about the rest of the year. Be obedient in this moment right now. And this is how it works. When I'm obedient in this moment right now, it takes me to the next moment. And when I'm obedient in that moment, it takes me to the next moment. And as I moment by moment, I walk into God's future. Do you understand that? That's why Psalm 119, 105 says, says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path step by step. As I follow it step by step, not in the future, but in the moment, I will walk myself in the future. You understand? And so what God is saying right now to some of you is this is your next step. Don't kick against the goads. Take that step. You understand? I feel like you understand. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but didn't see anyone. So Saul got up from the ground, and we had opened his eyes. He could see nothing. He was completely blind. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind. It didn't eat or drink anything. We have no idea how terrifying this must have been for him. How utterly terrifying. Not just because he can't see a thing, not just because he, I believe that he actually saw Jesus on the road, not just a light. Because he will say in other places of scripture in some of his epistles that, that Jesus appeared to you know, 500, he appeared to the 12 apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me. He says, Jesus appeared to me. He will say of himself with this account that I saw Jesus on the road. So I think he actually saw the risen Lord. Just as Paul did in the book of Revelation. We have no idea how terrifying this must have been. Not just because of that, because think of this. When Paul set out on that road, that long, arduous, 120-mile journey, taking six days, 
committed, he was committed to the belief that it was approved of by God to arrest and maybe have killed the opposers of God. That's what he thought. And now in this moment, he realizes that he is the one opposing God. And if he thought God approved of the arrest and and killing of those who oppose God, and now he realizes he's the one who's opposing God, what do you think he might be thinking comes next? (laughs) And God leaves him there in this complete other darkness with no external stimuli to just ruminate for a moment on who Christ is. And what I think was happening in Saul, like we have no idea, but I think what was happening, Saul was trained under Gamaliel. Gamaliel was one of the greatest teachers of this generation in all of Judaism. It is said of Gamaliel that he was called the beauty of the law. Like like he was such a devout and revered teacher of Judaism that they referred to to this man, Gamaliel, as the beauty of the law. In other words, when he spoke about the law of God, it was never more beautiful than it was coming out of Gamaliel's mouth. And this was Paul's teacher. So he was trained by the best. He knew all of the Old Testament scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, and he knew all of their history. And now in silence, after seeing Jesus left there in blindness, I can imagine his brain just firing, firing, firing with all of the scripture and the revelation of how it all pointed to Jesus. Now he realizes when Abraham was sacrificing Isaac, that was a picture of Christ. Now he sees Jesus through all of the Psalms and all the prophetic scriptures of the Psalms. Now he sees Jesus as the deliverer through the book of Judges. Now he sees Jesus Jesus as the rescuer that was that that was that was pictured in Moses. He sees Jesus in all of this. His mind's just exploding. That must have been something. And I think it's at that point where Saul's converted. And I think because I think it's at that point that he realizes the mercy and grace of God on someone who deserved destruction. And it's the realization of that mercy and grace of God that would inform and color the rest of Paul's life and all of his theology. And that's why he could write the book of Romans that centers on though deserving of punishment, there is the mercy and grace of God that saves. Here's what I know. When you and I have experienced the profound, magnificent, and beautiful mercy and grace of God, we give it to others, as Paul did when we refuse to be merciful and gracious to others, it can only be indicative of the fact that we've not experienced it. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias! Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul for he is praying. I'll bet he's praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come uh, and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. Can you see the pushback from Ananias? But the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. 
and I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. One of the things I want you to realize is how God redeems what was formerly flawed and failing. Just think about the players and the names in this account. Who did God, who was God talking to? What was his name? Ananias. Remember the last time we read about a man named Ananias? It was in Acts chapter 5 when he lied to the Holy Spirit and was killed. And now God redeems that name to rather than the man who's lying to the Holy Spirit, a man who is hearing from the Holy Spirit and being obedient. Go, go to Ananias and he was at the house of whom? Remember? The house of Judas. When was the last time we heard about Judas? He was the betrayer that denied Christ. And now that name is redeemed as the place of the work of Christ in the transformation of a life. And who did this all center around? Saul. We go back in the Old Testament, the most famous Saul, King Saul, who was the denier of God and the rejecter of God. And now that name is redeemed. God is about redemption. God is about making new old things. The old Ananias to the new Ananias. The old Judas to the new Judas. The old Saul to the new Saul. God is all about the work of transformation and redemption. Here's what I know. We all have a previous self, right? We all have a previous self. But God is in the habit of making new things out of old. And I think Saul, obviously realizing all this, Ananias, Judas, Saul himself is his namesake. I think he sees all of this and he sees how God is redeeming this. A new Ananias, a new Judas, a new Saul. And that's why he could write what he writes in 2 Corinthians 5.17 because it was the story of his life. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new has arrived. See, in the account, in these first few verses, what I see in this account is a, is a fleshing out of the, of the reality of the work of God in a life for renewal. Old things are made new. Old identities are remade into new identities. And this is the promise of God. So why would you kick against the goads? I love the fact that in verse 15 uh, and 16, the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. He said, he is my chosen instrument. God chose Saul before Saul could ever choose God. While Saul was still pushing against God and fighting against God, God chose him. And what I know is this, that God has chosen you. He has his hand on your life. He has a call on your life. And the Spirit of God is calling you and pursuing you to come to Him. Why would you kick against the goads any longer? You are God's chosen vessel. Don't kick against the goads. 
And the thing I love about this is, is, is God tells Ananias, I will show him. Do you remember what God said he will show him? What did he say? I will show him how much he must suffer. Now, now on one hand, I kind of feel bad for Saul. Like he just accepts Jesus, right? He has this incredible transformation. And the first thing God says about him is, awesome, man, I love you, I died for you, and now I'm going to show you how much you're going to suffer. Would any of us sign up for this? I mean, just think about it. This is, that is not the tagline under which we accept Jesus, is it? No, we accept Jesus under the verses of John 10.10. 10. I've come that you might have life and have it abundantly. We accept Jesus under the promise of Jeremiah 20 and 11. I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you, not harm you. Uh, we accept Jesus under the, under the headline of Romans 8, 28. God works all things together for the good of those love and call to We accept Jesus under all these other things, not under how much you're going to suffer. I wonder how Paul, in this moment, would view John 10, 10. I wonder how Paul would view Jeremiah 20 11. I wonder how Paul would view that he wrote Romans 8, 28. got to remember that it's kingdom above self and God is working and establishing an unstoppable kingdom not unstoppable individuals and just wrap this up with this look at this then Ananias went to the house and entered it placing his hands on Saul he said brother Saul the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road you were coming as you were coming here has sent me. <laughs> do, you, do you hear the, the apprehension? Like he's he's really laying it on on the front of the whole bunch, so Saul understands who's really in control. He sent me here so that uh, so you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food. He regained his strength. I, I just want you to note Ananias' apprehension and, and to realize that we can be obedient even when we're apprehensive. Notice what he says. He said, brother, he wants to remind Paul of their relationship now. We're not adversaries. Brother, Saul, the Lord, you know him, who appeared to you. You remember that. Jesus I mean, it's real specific. He's the one who has sent me here. So don't, like, understand. I just want to make sure that we're good, right? Here's the thing. Ananias heard God, was obedient, even though he was apprehensive. Do you understand? And Saul was blind for three days. And his mind just firing with all of this about Jesus in the Old Testament. And Ananias put his hands on Paul and prayed over him. And then God miraculously, as he gave the blindness, he lifted the blindness. It's a lesson for us here that prayer always comes before power. The acknowledgement of the Spirit of God always before the manifestation of the Spirit of God. And the first thing Paul does is what? He gets baptized. 
First thing. First thing, he, before he even eats lunch. Now, he hadn't eaten anything for three days. And before he even eats a snack, he's all, I'm going to get back. I want to put the jersey on now. Every time in the Bible, when there's a baptism, it came immediately after someone accepting Jesus. It's an immediate response to the grace and mercy of God and the new relationships that's established because of faith in Jesus. You get in the water, put the jersey on, and tell everybody else, I am his and he is mine. There's no delay biblically. Now, we're doing a baptism next week. There's about 17 people signed up so far. A couple new ones from the first service. It's your turn too. If you've you've accepted Jesus as your Savior, but have not been baptized by immersion, why do you kick against the goads? Be obedient in the moment. Don't worry about the next. And this moment is your moment to decide for Jesus and to make a commitment to follow him in baptism next Sunday. Go to the Start Here booth, sign up, let us know online or something so we can get in touch with you ahead of time. Do you understand? Do you understand? I don't know why y'all are so quiet today. Let me just wrap up with this. These people, disciples of Jesus, they were people of the what? The way. A way of belief and a way of obedience. So the two questions we have to ask ourselves, people of the way, a way of belief. Have I believed? Have I believed in Jesus as the only way to salvation because of his death on the cross and resurrection from the dead? Have I believed that he is the only way to the Father? Not by behavior, not by religious activity, simply by belief in faith because of the work that has already been done and accomplished on the cross. Have I believed? And if you have not yet believed, why do you kick against the goads? A way of belief and a way of obedience. And if you have believed, where is the place of obedience that still needs to take place in your life? What area of your life do you still need to repent and submit fully to? Why would you continue to kick against the goat? I'm going to give you a chance to pray. And we're going to pray together about those two things. If you've not yet believed, don't continue to kick against the goats. And if there's an area of life that you need to repent of and be submissive in, don't continue to kick against the goats. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you love us with a love that chose us before we ever chose you. And I know there are people here who still haven't chosen you, yet you still love them. And they are still your chosen. I I pray for those here and those who hear my voice who have not yet chosen to believe. 
that this would be their name. That by faith they would choose to stop kicking against the goads of belief and choose to believe this day in you as their Savior. If that's you, I want to encourage you in just a real simple way to just say, Jesus, I believe. I believe. I believe that you are the way to salvation, that you are the way to the Father. I believe in your death. I believe in your resurrection. And I believe that you have provided forgiveness for my sin. I accept that today. I choose to quit kicking against the goads. For those of you who have already made that decision, who are already in Christ, some of you know how painful it is as a Christ follower to kick against the goads. And God in his mercy and his grace and gentleness is calling you to confess and to repent and to stop kicking against the goads. And I would encourage you in this moment to say, Father, I'm sorry. Thank you that my disobedience has never diminished your love for me. But I don't want to kick against the goads any longer. It's painful and it hurts. This is my sin. Jesus, thank you that you died for it. I denounce that and I proclaim you. And I will be submissive to that which you've called me to. I don't want to kick against the goads anymore. Father, I thank you for the time we've had together to open up your word. It is good. It's good to open your word. It's good for us to be in the house of the Lord together. It's good to worship you. Holy Spirit, I ask that you do what only you can do. Father, be gentle with us. We repent. And in repentance, give us all that your mercy and your grace will allow us. In your name I pray, amen. Two quick things. If you prayed one of those prayers or made some decision or want to get baptized, please let us know. You don't got to tell everybody, you got to tell somebody. So if you want to drop us a line on the card or, or, or on our app or email or stop by the Start Gear booth, we'd love to celebrate with you and to walk you through the next steps. The other thing is this. I can't get through all of Acts 9 today. Uh, there, I'm going to wrap it up hopefully next week. But there's a part of this Acts 9 that is, is, is some of the most profound truth of what it means to walk with Christ in this world that is not written in Acts 9. It, it's, it, it's in what's missing that we get the lesson. And so I want, I want to walk with you through what's not there next week because it will have a profound impact on how you follow in faith by what's not in Scripture. Okay, so that's all I'm going to say. So read the rest of Acts 9, see if you can figure it out, and we'll get together next week and talk it through. You understand? Now, everything else that the Holy Spirit wants to do is between you and God.
And so I'm glad I'm not part of that little equation between you and God. I've done my job. I'm out. Uh, you do what you got to do with Jesus now. You understand? Let's see.